you uh, have a copy of the scripture, open it up to John chapter 6. If not, pull out your phone and Google John chapter 6. My family went to the pool yesterday. I did a little science experiment while we were there. It is impossible to walk on the water. (laughs) Except for, we're going to read today that it's not impossible. I mean, it may be impossible for all of us in here, but it wasn't impossible for at least one person. We've been making our way through the Gospel of John, and, and John is very clear about what his goals are as he writes this letter. Remember, the Gospel wasn't just a book uh, in the way that we think of a book. It, it was a compilation of the stories of Jesus put together for a specific people in mind. And so John had goals for these people that he's writing. And at the end of the Gospel in John chapter 20, he says what those were in verse 31. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. So just as Titus said, that is John's goal, that we would have life that comes only from God through believing in Jesus, that He is the Messiah, the Son of God. And then within the Scripture, you find these smaller goals. In fact, in John chapter 6, John has two very specific goals. Goal number one, that we would understand that Jesus is the bread of life. If you remember from last week, that was the passage of Scripture we studied together. Jesus goes on the mountain. Uh, He's got masses that are following him there. He says to his disciples, how are we going to feed these people? One of his disciples says, I don't know. Uh, And the other says, I don't know, but here's a lunch. And Jesus takes that lunch and he feeds 5,000 plus people there on the mountain. Well, this gets people very, very excited. Because they are looking for a king. Their current king actually lives in Rome, the the Roman Empire. They don't like that. They are the people of God. They should be ruling themselves under God's authority. And here now is somebody who fits a lot of Old Testament molds. And not only that, he makes bread for us out of nothing Let's make him king. And it says that Jesus withdraws from, from, from them. So John's goal in chapter 6 is that we would understand not only that Jesus is able to give us the bread of life, but he's going to say next week that he is the bread of life. And then how are people responding to that? So those are his two goals for us as we read. That we would understand that Jesus is the bread of life. And then how are we going to be moved by it? Uh, Or will we be moved at all? So in the middle of all this bread talk, Jesus walks on water. So no big deal. Here we go. John chapter 6, verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake, where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. So as I mentioned, Jesus has withdrawn by himself because these people want to make him king. They, they don't want to make him king in the way that he wants to be king, but they have a king in, in mind. They want him to just be that. And so he withdraws, and he withdraws his disciples, and he sends them across the Sea of Galilee. I brought a picture of the Sea of Galilee for us so that you have something to look at if you get bored. <laughs> Verse 18, a strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. Now the Sea of Galilee is infamous for these sudden, fast, and powerful storms. Verse 19, when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. So put yourself in the shoes of the disciples. We know this story and it's like, yeah, Jesus walked on the water. Super cool. I don't know what to do with that. 
other than awesome, right? I mean, I don't know. There's some big life application from Jesus walked on the water. Now you can walk across your pool, right? I mean, there's, there's not a lot to do with it. So we just gloss over the story. But put yourself in the shoes of these disciples. He's put you in a boat. You probably didn't want to be on that boat. Uh, you wanted to be up on the mountain with him. You know, earlier in, in Matthew's gospel, they asked him how to pray. So you assume that he's going up there to pray. Later on in one of the gospels, when a few of them do get to go up on the mountain to pray with him, the, Jesus is transfigured right before their eyes. And uh, some, some ancient, historic, heroic figures are, are there with him. And God speaks. So I bet they wanted to be up there with him. But he sent them away by themselves. And now they're out there. And this storm has come. These are professional fishermen, some of them. So you can imagine that they would have a pretty high level of confidence. And yet they're frightened. And here comes Jesus walking across the water. Now the reason that they're frightened is because this storm was unexpected. They knew that storms happened on the Sea of Galilee. Like I said, this, that, that lake is infamous for these kinds of storms. But it's still unexpected. right? I mean, all of us know that sickness and illness is going to crash into us one day. But when it's our turn, it's like we never have ever even given it one thought. It's unexpected. And then they feel trapped out there. One of the other gospels says that they're in the middle of the sea when Jesus approaches them on the water. So not only is this unexpected, they are not anywhere close to shore. And there is no quick fix. Right? They can't pull out a motor and just say, let's just zoom right through this storm. Uh, they have oars and a sail. Right? And those three ingredients are worst case scenarios for most of us. Something unexpected. In fact, we make deals with God where we'll say, well, if I'm going to obey you, if I'm going to really kind of do this the way that it seems like the scriptures want me to do it, then I'm going to need you to hold up your end of the bargain and make sure that it is a pretty smooth road for me. And you know that you've made that deal, either verbally or silently, when the road is not smooth, you take your end of the bargain back. Well, what am I following you for if this is not going to be quite as easy as I thought? But all storms come suddenly. They never call ahead. They're always unexpected. And then we feel trapped inside of them. We feel trapped when there's no easy fix. When a trial or suffering comes to us and we immediately have the answer... It doesn't stress us out. When you go to the doctor because you're sick and he prescribes something to you that you can pick up at the CVS, you're not really that stressed about it because there was a quick fix. Or at least you hope there's a quick fix. But when there's not, this is why I think parenting wears so much of us out. And I'm getting ready to talk about parenting. My oldest is 13, so clearly not an expert. Uh, but uh, what I have observed from watching experts is that the reason parenting really brings a, a follower of Jesus to their knees is because in parenting, there is no quick fix. If your child feels like they're going in a direction or displaying an attitude that you really don't care for, you can't just say, stop it. Right. And then they're like, oh my gosh, I am so sorry. Holy cow. Am I, am I like that? Please, Father, Father, please forgive me. 
My children, yet. Not yet happened. Maybe that's like year 14 that that happens, but... There's a Christian psychologist who writes all of these, uh, these books. They're really helpful for marriage and kids and all of that. But he has a series called Have a New Fill-in-the-Blank by Friday. Have a New Kid by Friday. He doesn't mean that literally. Uh, uh, have a New Marriage by Friday. Um, and uh, they're really helpful information. Friday is a lot the same as Monday after I read those books because they're just... Those are really important things. They don't just change like that. So when it's an unexpected suffering that you feel trapped in because there's no quick fix, it's hard for us, right? So that's, that's why so many, so many of us, I think, accidentally revolve ourselves around money because, because it is the thing that can fix things quickest. And yet I think that is one of the reasons why Jesus says uh, that it's harder to jam a uh, to, for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven than it is to take a, a camel and jam it through the eye of a needle because we're just always looking for these quick fixes. But if the disciples had had a quick fix, they never would have experienced Jesus coming to them as one who walks on the water. Right? Because that storm came upon them suddenly and in a frightening way, they got to know something about Jesus that I am convinced they would have not otherwise known. If they could have pulled out a giant motor and said, let's just power through this, they would have. But they couldn't. And because they couldn't, they got to see, oh, this, this one that we are following, this son of God, son of man, Messiah, he, he is also one that is able to walk on the water. Right? None of us want to suffer. You know, the, the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3, he says, I want to know Christ. And I'm like, yeah, check mark. I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection. Boom, put me down for that all day long. And the fellowship of his suffering. Polite pass. Right? None of us want that. But none of us get to choose it either. So when it's your turn, take as a consolation. There is in this unexpected storm with no quick fix an opportunity for me to see Jesus and experience him in a way that I would not have otherwise experienced him. It doesn't make the storm okay. It doesn't mean that one day you'll look back on this and say, oh, thank you, God, that whatever happened. You won't. But there is a and a walking on water that you will have gotten to see for yourself that if you had been able to fix it, you would have missed. Verse 21, Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. I love how the scripture says that they were willing to take him into the boat as if he had walked on the water and they're like, hmm, I don't know. Like you're going to be able to resist somebody like that? 
And it says that they were immediately on the other side. There are two ways. This is interesting. This is just for free, by the way. This is, uh, th- this is, this is interesting. There are two ways to read that. Uh, number one is that before they knew it, they were on the other side, which makes sense, right? Uh, one of the other Gospels, when it's telling this story, the reason they're frightened by Jesus is that they think it's a ghost, which, you know, to us on this side of all of it, it's like, oh, yeah, Jesus walks on water. No big deal. But they had never seen that before. That would have been crazy. And even though you don't believe in ghosts, you would have been like, yep, that's a ghost. Right. So when he comes and then he gets in the boat, they're probably thinking about all of that. So it makes sense that before they knew it, they were on the other side. Another way to read that is immediately means immediately. And they were three to four miles in the middle of the water. And as soon as Jesus got into the boat, boom. They were there. Now, that's actually happened in other places in the scripture. In fact, in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, one of the uh, people just going out and evangelizing, normal person like us, not one of those super apostles or anything. Uh, they're in one place and boom, they disappeared and were in another place. And so this is something that God had done before. Either way is, is fine. I like to believe it's the cooler way, uh, but uh, there's no way to know. Verse 22. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but they had gone away alone. So this is interesting because Jesus begins to play this cat and mouse game with these crowds. People have heard the miracle that he has done. Remember from last week, they are on the less populated side of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus, that's where Jesus fed the 5,000 plus. People on the other side of the shore, though, heard about it. And they got in their boats. And they're like, we want to see that. When the Super Bowl first came to Houston, uh, however many years ago, it was before Amanda and I had kids. And the Saturday, that Saturday night, we went to the, the, the Galleria Mall. I don't even remember why we were there. But I, I do remember coming out of one store. And there were like 40 people racing down the hall of the mall. It, uh, I didn't know what was happening, but, you know, I'm interested. And so we just kind of bebopped behind them. Didn't run, though. But uh, and uh, some famous musician had locked down uh, one of those real expensive stores. You know what I'm talking about? Like the kind where they check your bank account or they don't let you in. One of those stores. They had dropped the gate for this musician. And so there were like 150 people just peering through those metal slats trying to get a glimpse of this uh, celebrity uh, shopping, right? So it's totally easy for me to imagine that if people on the other side of the lake had heard, this guy took a little lunch and he fed probably 10,000 people, 5,000 men, it said, they're like, I want to see that. I don't got anything to do. And they got in their boats and they sailed across. But when they got there, Jesus wasn't there and his disciples weren't there either. And then it says in verse 23, Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. Now, here's what I think we need to ask ourselves. Why on earth would Jesus have done this? If John is right, and the whole goal is that people receive life from God by believing in Jesus' name as the Messiah and Son of God, why would Jesus seemingly hide himself from these crowds? You have people who are willing to come and listen. I mean, can you imagine me, not anywhere in the ballpark of Jesus, there being thousands more people out in the parking lot, and they're like, we just want to come in and hear the word of God. And I'm like, no, nah, we're actually changing church's address today, and we're going to go over here and meet in a secret place. 
And so if you're an insider, you got a text today that sent you to one place while the crowds came to this place. I mean, I would get fired for that. But that's, this is what Jesus is doing. There are massive amounts of people who want to hear him and experience him. And he says, no. He withdraws from them. You know, it's really interesting to me is... Um, you know, Jesus had these crowds that were hovering around his ministry. And then the weekend that he was crucified and resurrected from the dead, it's, everybody in Jerusalem knew that he was there. But after his resurrection, he appears to lots of people. Uh, and then uh, within about 40 days, he ascends back up into heaven. And so Acts chapter 1 tell, just picks up the baton where the gospel writers leave off. And so Jesus ascends. And, and then in chapter 1 of Acts, you can read this this afternoon if you want to. It tells us how many people were there gathered together. Right? So remember what they've seen. They've seen him crucified, resurrected from the dead. For 40 days, he helps them understand the scriptures, and they watch him ascend. This is pretty big, pretty big things. And it says that there were only 120 that were gathered there. So there are only 120 followers of Jesus, true followers of Jesus after his ascension. Right? But Jesus has said... Matthew chapter 16, that he's going to build his church. So, right, if he's a smart guy in the way that we determine smarts, he would take these massive amounts of people and he would just convert them into a church. And we would call it a massive success. But he doesn't. He builds all of this that we are experiencing today on the backs of 120 people who were convinced convinced that he was the son of God who had been crucified for the sins of the world and resurrected from the dead. I think I mentioned this to you last week, but Jesus taught the crowds, but he gave himself to his disciples. And one of John's goals is that you and I would understand the difference. These people, they're, they're not following Jesus. They are following bread. And he's able to tell. Now, that's hard for us. Because I can't tell in here today. I don't know which one of us are bread followers and Jesus followers. I don't know which one of us are in, uh, my mom wants me to be a good person, and so here I am. Right? Versus, uh, I am a deeply committed follower of Christ. I can't tell which one of us are like, hey, I was born in the South and I feel bad when I'm not here, so here I am. <laughs> I can't see that above your head. Right? But Christ can. If you remember from a few weeks ago, there is coming a day when he returns that he will put some of us on his right and some of us on his left. So convince, fool us all you want to. But one that that hide-and-seek game is not going to work forever. And Jesus could tell these crowds, it looks like success, but they just want my bread. But he gives himself to his disciples. But he has to send his disciples away. And the reason that I think he sends his disciples across the sea, even though he is withdrawing to pray, is because they were getting infected by the faith of that crowd. The crowd was like, uh, hey, let's make him king. He gives us bread. 
Uh, wouldn't this be great if this, essentially this God-anointed magician could do all these amazing things and he was in charge of us? Wouldn't that be great? And you can imagine the disciples, they've not been following Jesus for that long. We think of it as a, like a lifetime thing. They were only with him for three years. So somewhere in that three years, they're like, well, yeah, hey, that maybe you should just be king right now. And so to disinfect them from that shallow faith, he sends them across the sea. When I was growing up in church, in, in our youth group, we didn't have cool songs like the ones we're singing today. We sang this song, uh, we called it Casual Christian, uh, which is, I mean, what a terrible name for a song, isn't it? I mean, we sang this song at church. And the song was, I don't want to be, I don't want to be a casual Christian. And then it quotes Revelation. I don't want to live, I don't want to live a lukewarm life. And in the early 90s, uh, worship song was just a couple phrases and then you just repeated it uh, a bunch of times. <laughs> and, and that's what Jesus is trying to to do when he sends his disciples across the sea. He's trying to separate them from this like casual fellowship, right? Because this crowd, their agenda is driven by bread and tricks. But Jesus has already says that his agenda is driven by what he sees the father doing. That's John chapter five. And then he tells us our agenda as his followers is to do his agenda and his agenda is doing the agenda of his father. Uh, pull out your phone real quick and we're done. Uh, but if you'd open up your map app, this is not a trick, by the way. Go ahead and do it. It's going to be fun. So we'll go ahead and open up your map if you have it. It's going to be fun. Now, I don't know all phones. I'm not an expert. But in my phone, um, if I want to know where I am, there's a little arrow up here, and I just push it. So just go ahead and push it. It probably just zooms in on where you are. Everybody do that? I don't know if a Google phone can do that. Maybe Steve Jobs invented that little arrow. I don't know. So here's what the crowds were doing. They were pulling up their map, and they're like, "Where, where am I? And they push their arrow. Here's where I am. And I am in a position that I think it would be great if the king of Israel could do magic tricks for us. So Jesus, will you come and join us? Will you come and be our king? But the, the kind of discipleship that the, the gospels require out of us is the only zoom in, the only arrow, the only GPS that really matters is Jesus, where are you on the map? Because I got to get there. So way down the list of importance is where I am. Where are you? And that's what being formed into the image of Christ is all about. That's, that's why, that's the work that God is doing in you and in me until Jesus returns is just trying to get us on the map where Jesus is and, and joining him there and being like him there. But everything in your life and in my life, all that is around us is saying, hey, where you are, that's what matters. What you are thinking is what matters. What you are feeling, that's what matters. And Christ came and he said, I don't need those kinds of followers. Those followers do not build my church. Who are true disciples.
Now next week, this is a little preview, also for free. He's going to even take it further. Some of us are like, yeah, I'm a disciple. I'm not one of those shallow Christians. He's going to take it even further and say, yeah, but some of you think you're disciples and you're really not because I'm the bread of life and you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And John 6, verse 66 says that many of his disciples decided not to be disciples anymore. But let's save that for next week. Let's pray together.